Well, good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas to you all. Um, glad to spend Christmas, even though it's the day after. But so I still call it Christmas. I think we should call it Christmas until New Year's. And like, it gets a little weird when it's like December 30th and you say Merry Christmas to somebody. But hey, trees are still up. Jesus is still born. So I think it's still worthy saying it. Um, and like Patrick said, I'm, I'm, looking, I'm already looking forward to next year. Uh, Christmas Day, being with you guys, being with, as a church family, celebrating the birth of our Savior. Um, it just excites me now. So, um, All right, turn to your Bibles. Uh, turn, open your Bibles to Matthew 2. Uh, we'll be studying this this morning. Uh, and full disclosure to you guys, I preached this passage last year. It is not the same sermon. So this does not give you a license to zone out. Okay, uh, it's, it's a different, I promise you it's a different sermon. Uh, I actually... Uh, didn't look back at my notes. So also, don't look back at that old sermon and say I'm inconsistent, because I didn't look back. Um, well, I, I studied this passage last year and this year, um, and when I study it again, I'm, I'm struck on how deep this passage is. Uh, I, I think we, we're all very familiar with the story, the story of the Magi, we just sang about it, uh, coming and giving gifts to, to our Lord. Uh, but the more I study it, the more I see who Jesus is, and the more I see what is the right and appropriate response to him as uh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Um, so that is what this passage, passage is driving home. And I could honestly preach this year after year after year and focus on a different aspect. Uh, I originally had a sermon that was an hour and 30 minutes long, but I thought I'd be kind to you guys. So Merry Christmas, and uh, <laughs> I shortened it. Uh, but there, uh, the point is there's so much here. Um, so we're going to dive a little bit in, into a part of it um, this morning. And as I was uh, preparing my message, I came across a story about uh, a king of Jordan. This is in, like, uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And this king of Jordan wanted to know how, uh, how his people were doing, how his subjects were doing, how, what was their daily life like. So what this king decided to do is that he would go uh, undercover. It's kind of like that undercover boss uh, show, remember? This is, so this is like undercover king version of that. Uh, and he literally did it multiple times. So this is a true story. He would dress up as an old man. He would dress up as an accountant. He would actually dress up as a reporter, which I'm not sure, like, if you're going to dress up as a reporter, I guess you could put on glasses and, like, carry a microphone. But he somehow dressed up as a reporter and, and all these things. He would go out and he would be among his subjects and his subjects, obviously not knowing that they were talking to the king, would treat him as any common man or any other common man. Now, what I want to focus on in this illustration here is their, I wonder what their reaction would have been is after they had gone home, after the day is over, they hear later that, hey, the king of Joran was dressed as a reporter. You might have seen him. Here's a picture of how he looked like. And he, the subject sees him and says, oh, that's the guy I was talking to. That's a guy I was wa uh, working with, and then uh, I'm sure, did I say anything that could have offended him? Did I say something bad about the king? Was I d being disrespectful? And they start to piece together what their day was like and the interactions with this king to make sure that they, were, they acted appropriate to him. Well, when we come to Matthew 2, we're looking at the king of kings coming to earth. And this king of kings looked just like us. He was nothing special from the outside. He was a baby, like any other baby. 
but those who knew who he was treated him accordingly. Those who knew who he was, those who heard the revelation from the angels, revelations from the scripture, those who knew who he was gave him the full worship and praise and honor that this, he deserved and fell at the feet of this little baby because this little baby is the king. So this is what we're studying this morning in Matthew 2. This passage is going to tell us that even as a baby, even as a baby, Jesus was and still is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he must be honored, he must be worshipped, and, and we must submit to him as such. And I'm going to break up our passage. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12 this morning. I'm going to break up our passage into three sections. We're going to look at the search for the king. It'll be verses 1 through 2, the search for the king. Then we'll look at the threat of the king. That'll be verses 3 through 8. And the praise to the king. Which is 9 through 12, the remaining verses. So the search for the king, the threat of the king, and the praise to the king. And, and my hope and prayer, as we study this, this historic event surrounding Christ's birth, is that you would deem Jesus worthy of your unreserved devotion. That the worship of the Magi and the responses of, of Herod and the people and, and the scribes and everything that we're going to see here would cause you to evaluate your own adoration of your king, especially in the heels of Christmas. And that you would bring yourself to humbly submit and trust in the sovereign and gracious will of our Savior. So with that in mind, read with me Matthew 2. We'll start in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And old Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means last among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which had, they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening the treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Father, we read this passage, this familiar story. And Lord, we want to come before you and give you the worship that you so rightly deserve, the worship that is to be expected that we would give to, to, to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords. Father, I pray that you would show us in our own hearts as, as, as we study, as we look, 
Show us in our own hearts how we have held worship back from you. Lord, show us in our hearts how we, how we have desired worship for ourselves even. And Father, I pray that we will leave here honoring your name all the more. Praise Jesus' name. Amen. So when we come to Matthew 2, uh, one of the reasons why I love Matthew, Matthew's gospel, he dives into Jesus as the Messiah, right? First line, you know, go back to Matthew 1. The record uh, of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, you, you don't get like th- five words in before he says Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, I love Luke. Luke, uh, we've been reading Luke uh, throughout this month. Luke takes, takes a little bit of time. He, he climaxes to the birth of the Messiah. Matthew just gets right into it. And he starts, uh, but what we looked at it a couple weeks, our, uh, our pastor came on here, uh, up here a couple weeks ago and preached on the genealogy. And through that genealogy, we could see that Jesus was in the line of David. Jesus is that descendant of David that will rule from his throne. And for the Jewish readers, this is a big deal. Matthew is writing to his Jewish readers, and they see that line of David. They see the descendant of David, and they know that this is, this is a prophesied Messiah. And then we read a little bit later in chapter 1 that this, this little baby is a savior. Matthew says in chapter 1 that he will save his people from, his, from their sins. That this baby is Emmanuel, God with us. So Matthew doesn't waste any time here. He get, when he starts his gospel, he tells you who Jesus is. In, in chapter 2, he picks up the narrative of, of Christ's birth. And this, we're looking probably about like a month or two after his birth. Mary and Joseph, are, uh, they're no longer uh, in, in the stables there. Jesus is not on the feeding trough anymore. And verse 11 says they're, they're, they're in a house. So some time has, has gone by. But, but unbeknownst to, to Mary and Joseph, there is a group of magi, a group of these royal foreign dignitaries coming to seek out the, the baby they're caring for. And that brings us to our first section. The, the search for the king. So when you look at the search for the king, let's start with, with verse 1 here. Verse 1 in chapter 2 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, we talked about that a little bit, um, I think it was last week, that Bethlehem of Judea, there's two Bethlehems there. Right? We have one in the south and one, one in the north in Galilee. So Matthew is specifying here this Bethlehem, the one in the south, and not only is he just specifying to distinguish between the two different Bethlehems, but he's saying Bethlehem of Judea because that Bethlehem, is already, his readers know that it's prophesied that that's where the Messiah will come. So when he's saying Bethlehem of Judea, that connection is already being made. Like if you're talking to a Disney fan and you say, oh, I'm, I'm going to be going down to Anaheim, people know, okay, you're, you're, you're going to Disneyland, right? So like you don't have to say Disneyland, you should say the, 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 the city. Same thing here, Bethlehem of Judea, that's where the Savior is going to be born. So he, he specifies where, where, where the Messiah is going to be, and he gives us a time. He tells us, again in verse 1, that this is during the days of Herod the king. Uh, we're going to talk uh, a bit more about Herod in a moment. But for now, it's just a good reminder that when we talk about the Magi, you know, this, this, this story that, that I'm sure you have heard since, since, you, were, since you were very young, the story about uh, these three kings following the star, the original story is grounded in historical fact. Okay, we are not looking at a, a story that we just tell the children. There is verifiable, verifiable historical data that we could look to and say, yes, this happened as it says. 
So we're, we have our, a verifi verifiable time in history. We have a specific location. All right, we have Bethlehem. And we're going to look at who is, who, who, who's the, the subject here. We have the Magi. The Magi are coming, and uh, they're going to, they, it says here, they arrive in Jerusalem. So a lot of things can be said about the Magi, and this is where I had to be careful. Um, I could be a bit of a nerd and, and dive into history and get like, oh, wow, look at these connections. I'll try to calm that down. Um, the Magi, we, we often hear them as, as the three kings. I don't think they were kings. Um, the, the Magi has the same root word as what we see in Daniel when you see the magicians. Right? In Daniel 2, it talks about these magicians who can interpret the dreams uh, for the king. Uh, that's the same word that we see in, in our text today. And so very likely that these would be these uh, these advisors to the king who are very uh, into science. They're, they're into, into astronomy. They're, they're into math, uh, mathematics. Uh, but they're also, they're also astrologers. So they kind of have this, this, this quasi-science cultic approach to something like reading the stars. Okay, so we're, we're, we're probably looking at these advi advisors uh, coming into Jerusalem. And then we don't know how many there were. So there could have been three. Uh, I mean, we have the three, the three uh, gifts, right, in verse 11, the, the, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There could have been three. Uh, but if we look at Magi in history, it's, it ranges, like the, the, the council of Magi, if you want to call them that, it ranges from 2 to 12, which changes uh, the, the, the picture here. I, what I want to kind of get away from, and not that it's bad, but what's more likely is that this wasn't just three men riding on a camel very discreetly entering into Jerusalem. We have these VIPs, right? these, these advisors to the king coming into Jerusalem, maybe as little as two, maybe as, as, as high as 12, but if there are these advisors, if there are these high positions in this kingdom, it's very, very likely that they would have their servants, that they would have bodyguards, um, they would have um, a bunch of people that have uh, bakers. I imagine like, uh, like the Prince Ali version of like, Entering into a, a, what's it called? I forgot the name of the town. In Aladdin, Ag Agrabah. There you go, Agrabah. Right. So it's this this big kind of ordeal walking in. So the reason why it's important is because when you, when you look at, at verse um, verse three, what when Herod heard of this, when King Herod heard of this, it's not like oh, there's there's a couple of people walking around the marketplace. It's like no, there are this huge entourage of people coming in asking about this King of the Jews. So it's, it's, it's very, you know, we, we have a, it's a bigger picture here, I think, of what's actually going on historically. Um, the, only other, the only thing we, we know for sure and what the scripture tells us is that these wise men came from the east. So the Magi were coming from the east. And that's the area where you see Babylon and Persia. Um, I think it's, it's very highly possible that when you look back at the book of Daniel, the influence that Daniel had had persisted on into centuries from, from, from when, he, when he died and when, he, when, uh, when that book closes. Uh, I think a lot of the Old Testament teachings, a lot of the prophecies that, that, that Daniel said during that time um, persisted in that region. And also during that region, uh, during the New Testament times, we have a Jewish population still there. So it, it isn't like this, the, the, the Babylonian and, and Persian empires um, were 
completely devoid of Old Testament teachings. There, there's influence there. And I think some of these magi, some of these, these pagan astrologers, astronomers, you know, these, these, these pagan um, scientists, you want, we can call them that, I guess, I think that they had some knowledge of Yahweh. I think it, they, they, they wanted to come to, to, to Jerusalem because they knew something ab about the king of Yahweh being born. And so we see them coming in verse 2, saying, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? Well, one more other interesting note before we move on here. You notice that Matthew starts off with Bethlehem, right? He says, verse, in verse 1, now Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The Magi aren't in Bethlehem right now, at least. Right? You see that they're, they're going, they have arrived in Jerusalem. They arrived in Jerusalem, and they're, they're asking, who is born Who is born the king of the Jews? So they're not going there to see Herod. Herod was not born king of the Jews. We'll talk about Herod in a second. They're looking for someone who was born into this position. They're looking for, for a child. Uh, I think that's important to say because, well, let's say, let's, let's say you have a child, and, and you think that child is, um, you're particularly proud of your child, which is great, and you think that they're going to be the president of the United States. Okay. That's great. <laughs> um, go for it. Uh, what we, you don't want to start doing is, saying, is calling your child Mr. President, right? That's probably going a little bit too far. Or, or when your child walks into the kitchen and says, POTUS has just arrived in the kitchen. You, know, you, don't, you, don't, you don't need to say that because you don't know if he's going to be president or not or she's going to be president. You, know, you have no idea. You don't know what's going to happen. This is a little different. The Magi are seeking a baby who is currently king. This baby is currently king. He doesn't have the potential to be king. He's not going to be crowned king one day. This baby is the king, and it is not just a king. It is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And they have come to worship this king. So that's, that's probably why they came to Jerusalem. Uh, they saw the star. They pursued the star. Uh, in, in verse 10, it says that they rejoiced when they saw it. So it's likely that the star, um, whatever the star is, we'll get to that in a second, Whatever that star was went away, and so they said, well, we're looking for a king. Probably the best bet is to go to the capital city right, of, of Israel. Let's go to Jerusalem and see if the king's there. So they show up looking for this king and to go to the capital. Um, okay, so there's a lot of speculation of what this star is. Um, I don't want to make a, a point in my sermon to talk about all the possible things. Uh, I'm not going to talk about it. Um, except to say this one thing about it. Um, the, the star, I want to be very careful here. The reason why I want to be careful because I read a lot of it and I nerded out. Um, there are papers written on what this star could be. The papers could even go back to uh, one, of, uh, one of the physicist mathematician, his name is Johannes Kepler. He wrote a paper on what this star could be. But no matter how scientific you get about it, there's still, you can't pinpoint exactly what star. We can't even pinpoint if it is a star. It could have been just the glory of the Lord shining uh, and leading the, these, these uh, magi to the saviors, leading him to this baby. But what I want to camp out on is, is this. I love the truth that the universe as a whole proclaims the glories of, glories of Christ. We read in Colossians that, that all things were created through him and for him. So if God 
let's say God did use a star. Let's go with that for a second. If God used a star, when God created the stars in the heavens, when he created the planets on, on the, the fourth day of creation, he made those planets and those stars set on a timer so that when the fullness of time has come, those stars would point these wise men, point these magi to Jesus so that these magi would then magnify Jesus. I love that idea. God must be glorified by the universe, by the nations, and by you. And if God must be glorified and worshipped, then so must his son be glorified and worshipped. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Whatever that star is, this baby must be worshipped. And this sweet baby, born in a manger, must have the nations bowed down before him. So the Magi come to worship this Jesus because they understand, to some extent, not to the fullest, but they understand that this baby is worthy. And Matthew uses a word here for worship. You go to verse 2. It says they have come for we have uh, saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Uh, Greek word for, uh, for the worship, uh, proskuneo. Proskuneo, in, in the context of Matthew, used 13 times. Twelve of those times, the object of that worship is Jesus. There's one other time that's a parable, and you could uh, interpret that parable to, to either refer to, to uh, the object of worship as God or Jesus, even in that parable. But 12 of those times is definitely about Jesus. So in the context of Matthew, that word that we see for worship is, is reserved for worship of deity. And I, the reason why I'm hammering that is because these, these magi are coming and not just saying, this is going to be a king, a future king, we should probably honor them. The, Matthew is telling us that these, uh, these magi are coming because they recognize him as deity. They recognize him as, as the king above all kings. And so they come to worship him. So kind of pull back here and ask ourselves, what is Matthew doing here by introducing the Magi? Why have this story in Matthew? And, and Matthew is the, only, is the only gospel that has the story. Why have this story at all? And I think it's because he's telling his readers that Jesus must be worshipped as Messiah, and not just by Jews. Jesus is not the Jewish Messiah. He didn't come just to save Jews, but he came to save Gentiles as well. Jesus came to, to, save, to save me. He came to save you. And so Matthew's record, of, of Matthew's record of these historical events showcases God's care and plan for the world. I like Isaiah 60, verse 3. Isaiah 60, verse 3 says, The nations will come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. And here we have these Gentile magi following a rising star in the east that leads them to worship the Messiah. Contrast that to Matthew 28. At the very end of Matthew 28, Jesus says, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And because all authority has been given to me, you go and therefore make disciples. Make disciples of what? All nations. We see this, this really interesting flip here. Um, Jesus is saying, when he says, all authority has been given to me, he's saying, there's no nation that's outside my jurisdiction. I'm not just working in Israel. I'm not just working in the United States. I'm working in every single nation on the earth because I have jurisdiction all over it. 
all over it. And I have people in those nations that I have called. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And yes, there are, there are unreached peoples group, but even more of a, of a reason for us to obey that command, for us to go. And this is what I love what about, about what, this, what Jesus is doing, what, what Matthew is doing here. Matthew shows us this paradigm shift of how God reaches the world. In the Old Testament, it's very much a come and see model, right? Come and see the temple. Come and see the tabernacle. Come and see that God is among Israel. And I think the Magi are the last of this. They come and see and they worship the king. But by the time we get to the end of Matthew, and Jesus tells his disciples all authority has been given to him, it's not a come and see anymore. Jesus says it's a go and tell. Go and tell your neighbors. Go and tell your, your co-workers, your community, the nations. You go to the ends of the, of the earth because Jesus is the king of kings and has authority over all of it. And because Jesus has ultimate authority, the world must give its utmost adoration to him. And that's what we go and tell. So these magi are the last of the come and see. They're coming because Jesus is worthy of worship, not just from the Jews, but from the Gentiles, from the world. And they come and search for their king. Now, this is immediately contrasted to the reaction of Herod and the people. So uh, we go from the search of the king, in verses 1 through, to the threat of the king. The threat of the king. And we go to verse 3. So look at verse 3 with me. So when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Now, again, I have to be careful here because I could dive uh, into the history, but it's, I, I really, one of these days I'm going to give you guys, uh, 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 Patrick with me, <laughs> I'll give you guys a sermon on, on the sovereignty in this passage. There's so much work God is doing in, in the kingdom of the Magi, in the, uh, through, through Herod's very life, and how he's setting up prophecy. So one of these days I'll do a, a, a sermon just on that. But just to read really quick here, be very brief, this is not Herod's first time reigning in Judea. Uh, Herod had been in Palestine earlier, and what happened a few decades before this event here uh, is that he was overthrown. Uh, the, the, the kingdoms from the east, which is the same region where the Magi are coming from, came in and, and disposed of him. Like he, uh, well, not killed him, but got rid of him. He wasn't able to rule. He left. He, he ran for Rome. He goes to Rome, and the Roman Senate says, all right, you encountered some difficulty. We will proclaim you the king of the Jews. So this is like the Roman Senate speaking. We will say that you are the king of the Jews. We'll give you more people for your army, and you can go back and take over that throne. So he goes back, goes back to Palestine, and he takes it over, and this is where we come to. So now, what do you think Herod is, is thinking when he has all this history about people coming from the east to overthrow him, and here comes these magi from the east saying, where is the king of the Jews? One other thing you have to know about Herod Herod is incredibly insecure and paranoid. As soon as he perceives the threat, he has them eliminated. We see that here in our text. He wants to uh, uh, kill this child, this, this king of the Jews. Uh, wouldn't it be the first time he, he killed the high priest at one point because he thought the high priest wanted his throne. He killed his mother-in-law because he thought his, the mother-in-law was interfering with him. He killed, eventually, his, his wife and his two sons. Uh, he, i get the story. Uh, Herod 
rounded up a whole bunch of, uh, of uh, Jerusalem's dignitaries, so a whole bunch of um, influential people in Jerusalem, round them up and told his guards, wait till I die and then kill them. Because when I die, I want people to mourn my death. So kill them so that way that you make them sad when I die. This is the hair that we're talking about. Incredibly insecure, incredibly greedy for power, wanting people to, to like him, even if, if it means making them like him. So here comes the, here comes the Magi asking for King of Jews, and, and he feels threatened. I'm sure he's getting flashbacks taking him uh, flashbacks a few decades ago when he was taken off the throne. And so he makes this baby, he makes him public enemy number one. He, he starts thinking of a plan of how he could get rid of this baby. And so he's going to tell the Magi, hey, Magi, find this baby for me. I'll go and worship him. But what he really means is that he's going to go and destroy him. But we know God is in control of all things. And of course, we read in verse 12 that the Magi never go back to Herod. One thing about Herod, one more thing about Herod that I think makes this exponentially worse. Herod knew who this baby was. Look at verse 4. He calls the scribes and priests together, right? Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So when he hears king of the Jews, he's not thinking, okay, this is someone who's just after my throne. He says, oh, the king of the Jews, this is the same thing, this is the same Messiah that was prophesied. I better find out where the prophecy is so I can go kill him. The Messiah, he wants to kill the Messiah, the one who will bring peace to the earth, the one who will save the people, uh, his people from his sins. Herod wants to kill him. Herod sees him as a threat. He is, so, he is so caught up in his own thirst for power that he completely overlooks the grace and the love which is available through the Messiah. It's a sad story of how pride and hatred blind sinners from seeing the, the innocence and the grace available through our Savior. Okay, so that explains Herod. That's why he's troubled. But what about the people? Now, if I was... If I was uh, in Jerusalem, I knew about Herod and, and, and what he has done, how cruel he could be, how paranoid he could be. And these magi come around asking, hey, do you know where the king of the Jews is born? And I'd be a little worried. I'd be like, has Herod heard about this? And it's kind of hard for Herod not to hear about it because remember, this is, a huge, this is a huge party. And so the people start to fear. What is Herod going to do? What, is, what, what next thing is Herod going to command that will, that will hurt us, and their, their fears aren't invalid, right? We know what happens with Herod. Herod eventually orders the killing of all the babies in Jerusalem under two, or the, all the um, males under two. So Herod knows that the, the, the Magi are looking for the Messiah. I'm sure the people knew that the Magi were looking for the Messiah, but instead of being excited to see God finally working after 400 years of silence, they grow fearful. And, and, and they're troubled about what the coming of the Messiah means for their lives, about what disruption they're going to have to face because the Messiah decided to come. They didn't want the difficulty that would accompany them, the coming of the Messiah. The, the fear of the earthly king overshadowed any hope that the, the, the king of kings had to offer. 
And fear can be crippling and distorting. I think we've all run into that. I think as a parent, you see that. Um, I think you see that in evangelizing. I remember I was talking to a, a college student uh, about Christ. And he agreed with everything I was saying. He wanted to follow Christ. Um, and then he started wondering about how would following Christ affect his relationship with his parents, with his brothers and sisters, with his friends. And I told him that, that those relationships will likely be affected. We know the world hates Christ. And the world hates Christ, the world's going to hate you. That scared him. I kept talking to him, but he didn't want to lose those relationships. And he told me, as much as he wanted to, he could not follow Christ. And when he walked away, I, I, I thought the, the, the rich young ruler walked away sad, knowing that he couldn't possibly make that sacrifice. The fear eclipsed the hope that Jesus offered him. And the same is true for the people in Israel. Fear eclipsed any hope that they would have in the Messiah. So you have Herod acting in anger, going against the Messiah, the people responding in fear. And then the, the, we, look at, we get the scribes and, and the priests. So they react a little differently. Uh, so Herod calls them in. Uh, I think the, the scribes and the priests were like, okay, Herod's calling us. Let's just go do this thing, and then we'll come back to the temple. So they go, they meet, they go to Herod's meeting, and, and we read in verse 5 and say, yeah, uh, the Messiah, he, he's in Bethlehem of Judea. They quote Micah 5.2, and they also make reference to 2 Samuel 5.2, which that reference in itself is a, it's an interesting study on its own. But they say, okay, here's Messiah. Messiah is born in Bethlehem. Messiah is coming from, as uh, a descendant of, of David. You would think that being uh, the, the scribes and the priests, that they would think, okay, hmm, these magi are coming and asking for the king of the Jews. Is there possibly any descendants of David in Bethlehem right now? That seems like a logical question. And that never comes across their mind. So how could they be so, so blasé, so indifferent to the arrival of the king of kings? And I thought, well, maybe, maybe it was just too subtle for them. Maybe this was just too subtle. Maybe the Messiah should have come and performed some amazing miracles to show that he was present. Oh, wait, he did. Maybe Messiah should have re revealed himself as Yahweh. Maybe he should have said something like, before Abraham, I was. And he did that too. Maybe the Messiah should have fulfilled all the prophecies regarding himself, died, and come back to life. I don't think the problem is that it was too subtle. The problem is that their indifference is rooted in unbelief. And their unbelief keeps them from investigating any further. Instead of going to the Magi, instead of taking the five to six mile hike to Bethlehem, they stay in their temple because that's where they're comfortable. What a contrast to the Gentile pagan astrologers who left their country to come worship this baby. Let me take a pause here before, before we get to our last section. How have you responded to Jesus? How have you responded to Jesus? Are you like Herod, responding with hostility to Jesus, angry at the thought that, that someone else is ruling your, your life, that you have to live your life according to somebody else's rules? Have you responded like the people? 
rejecting Christ out of fear or not going forth and telling because you fear people rather than, than obeying, obeying Christ. Or maybe you're like the priests and scribes. You heard Jesus. You know who he is. Just don't care. You say it sounds good for others, but this whole Christian thing's not for me. If any of these sound like you, or maybe you're in a season where you're struggling with one of those things, what I want, what I'm asking you to do at the end of our Christmas season here is to reconsider Jesus. Reconsider how you're responding to him. Go back to the scriptures with fresh eyes, with a clean slate. Go back to scriptures. Read, read in Romans 5 that Jesus died for his enemies so that they can be reconciled to God. And ask yourself, is your anger warranted? Is that a, a, an appropriate response to who Jesus is? Read Romans 8. Read Romans 8. Jesus came and he freed, he freed us from the, from the spirit of, of fear. And you're adopted into God's family. If you follow Jesus, you will forever be his son and daughter. And nothing, nothing can ever separate you from the love of Christ. And if you're indifferent to him, I want you to consider, just, one, just again, with fresh eyes, consider the gift that he offers you. The Bible tells us that Jesus was rich. He was with the Father, and he became poor. He took on flesh, and he died for us. And he became poor so that in his poverty, we can become rich. He died so that we could be with him forever. Please don't leave here today without reconsidering Jesus, without reconsidering how you have responded to him. And follow him as your king. For those of us who, who do trust Jesus, we come to Jesus in worship and praise because all those things we know to be true. We rejoice in those things. And this is what we're going to see in our last section. We're going to look at our last section, and I'll conclude with this, a praise to the king. So verse 9, they, they leave uh, Jerusalem. They, they head over to Bethlehem. And in verse 10, they, they, they see the star. And the way they react to the star, again, kind of shows that the, maybe the star wasn't there the whole time. But I love how Matthew writes it. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. I mean, how many times can you say they rejoice, or how many times can you say they have joy in one sentence? I think, you know, Matthew does it four times here. Right? Rejoice exceedingly with great, that's megas, right? Mega joy, joy for. Four times he, he just hits home that they had joy. I don't know if Matthew could have been any clearer. Where does this joy come from? I don't, it, the joy doesn't come from the journey ending. It's not like, oh, look, at, there's, our, there's our destination, we're done. It's, it, I think of like, you don't get more excited to get off the Disneyland off-ramp because you're outside of the freeway, unless the traffic is really bad, right? Then that, that, I can understand that. Um, but they're not excited because it's ending. They're excited because they're finally able to worship Jesus. Their joy is coming from the reality of who he is. They get to behold the king of kings, this, this long-awaited Messiah who has set everything right, and this Messiah is about to be two, two feet from them. It's about to happen. Finally, they're finally going to be with Jesus. Our praise and worship is characterized by the same joy. 
we rejoice in the coming of our Savior. We, we rejoice around Christmas because our Savior is born. But we also have the blessing of knowing what Jesus did, or what Jesus accomplished. The, the, the Magi don't have that. Magi know that he is the king of kings, but they don't know what he will do in his life. We know that he accomplished our forgiveness on the cross when he died for us. We know that he has defeated death in his resurrection. We know that when he returns, when he returns, he will wipe away every tear. There will no longer be death. There will be no more pain, no more mourning. So, yes, we rejoice with great joy because our Savior gives us great hope. That's why we sing joy to the world. Joy to the world because the Savior reigns. So we praise the Lord with great joy, but we also praise our Lord with giving. So look at verse 11. The, the Magi come up to his house. By the way, it's not a palace. It's not this, this kingly throne, but it's this little modest house in a suburb of a suburb, in a little truck stop town of Bethlehem. An upgrade, for, I guess an upgrade from the manger. And these magi come and they fall on their knees before the baby Jesus. They recognize who he is, but they also recognize who they are, right? And, and that, in, in verse 11, when they fall to the ground in worship, they know they're sinners, and he is a holy God. They know that they have to rely on God's creation to sustain themselves, yet this baby holds all things together. Magi know that they're here for, for a moment, but Jesus has come from eternity past. So what do these Magi do? What do you do? What do you do when you're before such a great king? Well, the Magi offer these three elements, right? We, and we know what they are. This, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We could find uh, scriptural significance to each one of them. Um, you know, gold can speak of his, uh, of his kingship. Frankincense uh, speaks of his deity. Myrrh hints at his death. But besides that, and yeah, we could spend more time on that, but besides that, the, the gifts that they're giving are, are just appropriate for a king. The Magi are offering this baby Jesus what they would offer the greatest king they, they, could, they could come across. What do we offer the king of kings? What do we give him? What do we give him? Not because he has a need for it. It's not that Jesus has a need from us, but what do we give him to honor him? And for those of us who are under his service, under the service of the king, for those of us who are, who are followers of Christ, the answer of what we give him is simple, but it's costly. We honor him by giving him our lives. And we give him our lives freely because he gave his for ours. Romans 12.1 says that we offer our, our lives, our bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is our, your spiritual service. So we offer worship through what we do, through everything we have. We give him everything because he is worthy of everything we have to give. Now, instead of just leaving there, let me go a little bit deeper with this. Um, do you know what you say to God or what you're communicating when you give him everything, whether that's, that's money, whether that's time, whether that's things you're hoped for, you just give it to the Lord, whether that's future plans to your life and you give that to the Lord? When you sacrifice those things to the Lord, 
you are saying to him, Lord, you are more important than my money, than my pride, than, than, than my life plans. You give me more joy, more satisfaction. I'm more content with you than any of these things. And God is honored in that. God's glorified in that. What can you sacrifice to him today? What, what have you held back from him? Or what have you kept for yourself that you could easily give to him? It's an amazing thing. When you think about what sacrificing to the Lord does, um, it's not that we, when you sacrifice something, it's not that we lose joy. We don't lose joy. We, we might lose a thing. We, we might give up a, 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 a certain pursuit or, or a goal that we have, but we don't lose joy. The sacrifice that we give intensifies our love and joy for him because we realize when we do that, when we give it up, I still have Jesus. So that's what we do when we praise the king. Not only do we praise him with great joy, but we also praise the king with our lives. Let's continue to do that. Let's continue to do that as we praise him. Let's continue to do that as we go tell the nations and as we worship this amazing king. And I do want to say, again, if if Jesus is not your king today, please do not leave here without reconsidering him. Come talk to me. Come talk to Patrick. Come talk to anybody, and, and, and we will gladly open up the scriptures with you again and again and again so that you could see this marvelous king that who has come and died for you. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice in the coming of the Savior. Lord, we think about everything we've heard this month, about how you have how have you used Jesus to redeem, to redeem towns, to redeem sinners, to redeem experiences for, for, for your purposes, for your glory? And Lord, we, we look at our passage this morning about what it means to, to worship you, about how you demand the world to come before you, to come before your throne, bow the knee, and give you all praise. Lord, I pray that as we wrap up 2021, head into 2022, Lord, help that to be a a top priority in our lives. Help us to look through our own hearts and see what could we we sacrifice to you, Lord? What could we give to you as an offering of worship and of praise? Lord, reveal those things in our hearts that we we could give you all the more glory and honor. And Father, again, we just come before you and thank you for sending your son that we could be freed from fear, that we could be freed from the hold of of greed and from indifference and see how satisfying and how joyful it is to be with you. Thank you, Father. Praise Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.